Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine on SAFM, leading the conversation. All right, this is a fascinating story. So UCT has obviously been using skeletons and so on, as many universities do for conducting studies and so on. The issue here was that the question arose of how these were procured. Was there any information on how the university had procured these skeletons? And when the issue came up, it came up, with information that was a little bit uncomfortable for the university. The procurement of these skeletons and these remains was a little bit questionable. So a group of uh, academics at the uh, at UCT decided to do something about it. And I'm fascinated by the entire process because this is some of the stuff that we ask the world to do of some of our artifacts, our remains, and so on. But UCT has, has, I think, done the most amazing thing. So I'm joined on the line by Professor Loretta Ferris, Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Transformation. She will be providing us with an overview of, at the very beginning, what exactly happened. Professor Ferris, good afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Good afternoon, Pamela. Uh, thanks for having us um, on the on the show today. So, um, is it normal for people to kind of question? Is was there an audit that happened? How did the curiosity come about to questioning how how the remains came to the university? Yeah, you know, as you mentioned, this is something that many countries are dealing with. Is is that many universities, many museums have remains of people that. Um, came to their museums in during a time in which it was considered appropriate to do what we would consider race science today mm. on people. And so um, there was a symposium in 2017, a countrywide symposium, and the curator of the um, human biology department at UCT attended that a symposium and there was a discussion around what is ethically acquired and what is unethically acquired. So after that she came back to the university and she did an audit and that is when we discovered that we have 11 remains in the the um, skeletal collection that were unethically obtained. And I mean, the detail for me is quite scary because the person that brought the remains to the university was doing it in their minds for scientific reasons. Yes, so so this was, once again, I think one needs to consider it during that time, you know, it was in the 1920s. When, of course, you know, Sun and Koi, well, really all black people were not considered to be humans. I mean, that was kind of the way in which people regarded us during those periods of time. And so, and, and they thought that, you know, it, it's appropriate to dug up the graves of people to bring them to the university for studies. And so, um, at the time, there was a student at the university who lived on a farm in Sutherland, in the Sutherland area. And he dug up some of the, what is called the laborer graves on the farm and brought, um, you know, the remains of these people to the university to a professor who were known for doing this kind of science. Um, and, and so there it was sort of in, in the collection for, you know, all these years um, until we did the audit, specifically with the intention to look at what is ethically and unethically acquired currently in our, in our um, 
collection. I mean, when the subject came up, of course the audit happened, but when the subject came up of, you know, maybe it's time that we do something ethical about this and maybe return it back to the family, mm-hmm. how easily was that accepted by the university? You know, it was, um, I, in a way, um, it was a decision that was easily made. Mm. I mean, we, we had to consider, you know, um, obviously, what are the implications for the university? But we had to, to also recognize and accept that as an executive now, we have to take responsibility for something that happened in the 1920s, mm. because this remains still at the university. And so it was clear to us that we should do what is what is the right thing to do, and that is to return the remains. Um, so it wasn't, you know, that was not a, a difficult or a, you know, a decision that, yeah. that we had to fight for. I'm so glad know. to hear that. Professor Simon Hall now joins us as well on the line. And uh, Professor, thanks very much for joining us. But surely the, the process of going back into the community and deciding with the community, can we bring your people back? Were they alarmed when you, when you approached the community? Um, I'm, uh, thank you for, for the invitation. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not um, kind of qualified to, to speak to that um, directly. Right. Our, um, the, the social development specialist, Doreen February, was, was in, um, facilitated the whole process of contacting ah, okay. uh, families in, in Sutherland. Yes. But I think the initial response of the families when, um, when the approach, when UCT made the approach, mm. And and started making these these connections was was clearly one of shock mm. um, and and deep deep disturbance mm. um, because there there was a memory of an event um, of of this kind that 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 lived with the with the families in in Sutherland and as the details of this. Um, uh, this event, this story, this this um, uh, the, the, this um, exhumation uh, came came to light. Um, they they progressively got uh, got to grips with it, but the initial response was clearly one of pain and and shock. Uh, from from did we know exactly where these were dug up from, Prof? Yes. Um, so when when the issue of um, the reburial, the repatriation of the the human remains back to um, the area from which they came, and um, uh, as as the connection with the, the with the families, the descendants of these remains grew. Obviously, the question uh, developed as to where the reburial, where the re- repatriation would would take place. Mm. One of the obvious um, places for reburial would be in the actual cemetery on the farm from which the the human remains were um, were taken. Were, were taken. Mm. And as as this developed, the families. Um, uh, uh, decided that they didn't want to um, have the reburial take place um, uh, in the cemetery, uh, but would rather have it close to the community within which they currently live in Sutherland. And uh, that was that their decision um, clearly uh, is respected, and uh, that is the um, uh, so the reburial will take place in in Sutherland. I mean, I've I've just been looking at some of. 
the sketches that came through and uh, PhD candidate Karen, uh, Karen Smith, who's currently in, in Liverpool, put these together. I mean, I can only imagine for myself, if I were a family member, looking at these images of what may have been my great grandparents. That must have been such an emotional experience. I'm going to touch base with her just now. But I'm also wondering, Prof, from from where you are working with the community around the spaces and stuff, would they give you reasons about why they were not keen on that specific gravesite? Well, what 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 happened is that when when this um, this issue started to de- to develop, uh, myself and a historian colleague, Professor Nigel Penn, we went. Um, to the farm and uh, located uh, the the, um, the cemetery, and part part of um, that relocation was to um, uh, identify perhaps where the the um, the graves that had been disturbed mm. and from which the bodies had taken to identify those. The exhumation spot. Obviously, with with a view to to perhaps. Uh, the reburial taking place there. Um, as as we've discussed um, subsequently, the decision was made to do the reburial in Sutherland. But we felt very strongly that um, the scene of the crime, so to speak, mm. um, needed to be mapped. So we did map the um, the cemetery, and we have a detailed record um, of the the um, uh, of the cemetery and basically the event. The 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 the, mm. um, the archaeological record of the actual event. I'm going to ask you when I come back. I mean, about the person that actually exhumed these these bodies. That family are they still in this on the site? <laughs> that is fascinating. I'm going to ask about that and also ask more detail around the family members of the the remains that were repatriated to obviously a, a different site. Um, but basically, UCT putting together remains of of bodies that were being studied and taking them back to their families which were acquired around the 1920s and I'd love to take your comments on 0891 104-207 So the University of Cape Town decided to take back the remains that were sitting in their labs um, to the families that had uh, lost their loved ones essentially around the 1920s. These are the bodies of the indigenous people of the the, the country around the Sutherland area and uh, these bodies and uh, remains have been taken back to the communities. UCT has decided to do the honourable thing as as we were saying earlier. Many countries and universities and museums have to obviously you know contend with what to do with uh, remains that were sourced unethically and this I think is a fantastic development coming from UCT and I'm joined by Professor Loretta Ferris who really kicked off this particular project and also Professor Simon Hall who worked on the archaeology and um, dealing with obviously where the remains would be found where they would be taken back and so on PhD candidate Catherine Smith also joins us on the line from Liverpool and she worked a lot with the facial reconstruction process from from many of you were was it was it easy to identify the exact family descendants of these people? 
Uh, maybe I can talk a little bit about that. As Simon has indicated, we um, asked somebody to, uh, to do the public participation process on behalf of the university. And what she did was she went to Sutherland because in the archives we had two surnames. Two oh. um, of the individuals came with surnames, Abrams and Stierman. Sure. And so with these surnames, she went to the Sutherland community and started, um, you know, asking around for people that may still live in the area with these surnames. And she actually managed to locate people who still carry these uh, surnames. And as Simon has indicated, um, some of these people were telling the stories about, you know, what they've heard mm. um, from their grandmothers and fathers about, you know, something that has happened on, on a farm. And so, so sort of the, there was some of this in the historical narratives. Mm. So, you know, so she actually managed to trace the descendant families um, and so they were really, in a way, um, the the people that we connected with in the community to to um, you know do the community participation with. But we also involved the broader Sutherland community mm. in the in the process. Had the families ever attempted to go to UCT and ask for the bodies back and the remains back? No, because they were not aware mm. of the fact that the remains were at UCT. And mm. so, as Simon indicated, it this came as a shock. Mm. But I think after the initial shock, there was a, a great curiosity about, you know, what is our history, our heritage? Mm. And, and they wanted to know certain things about the remains. And that's how the scientific project then started. Mm. You know, the research project to reconstruct um, the people, in, you know, to get a sense of what they would have looked like, to get a sense of how they lived, how they died. Um, you know, their ages, their gender. So, and, and that's why we ended up with a project that gives us a lot more information than what we initially had when we first made the discovery. So, so, so what do we know? What, what do we know? Uh, I, I know that we've got some sketches, but what do we know about how they died? Well, um, as I indicated, there are nine individuals from um, from the Sutherland area. Eight of them lived on the farm, mm. and um, one of them was actually found in a road cutting, and that um, and that's a skull only. But that actually dates back um, seven hundred years ago. Mm. Um, so it's it's quite an ancient um, skull. But we know it was very interesting. In the records, we had some information about people, and then through the research process, we could either verify the, the truthfulness of that or actually disprove it. Um, you know, but um, so so we know, for example, um, through the research that we do, we did, we did the gender of some of these people. We we could um, find out how old they were at the time of death, yeah. how how long, the, you know, how tall they were, how short they were. We could see whether they had, you know, for example, there were signs of heavy physical labor labor for some of them. Yeah. Um, for some of them, we saw some of the injuries. It's, it was clear that one of them, for example, died as a result of a heavy blow against the head. Mm. Um, we, we could even sort of see traces of um, tooth decay, you know, mm. and, and dental infection, 
which would have made eating difficult and given the time period, if not treated, could actually have led to death. So there was a lot of interesting, you know, one person, um, we could figure out that he must have walked with a limp mm-hmm. and um, he was given the name Fuki, which means foot mm-hmm. and in, you know, in English. And it may have been because he walked with a limp that people started calling him, you know, little foot in essence. So, so the name Footy, how, how do we know that he was given that name? Was it documented so when, when he, when the, when he, uh, the, the, the guy that brought the, the, the remains to the, to the, to the university, did he have that name there documented? Yes. Yes. Really? So there were, there were records that came with the remains. Yes. Um, some of them came with, um, there were two individuals um, that came with surnames, as I indicated. Yes. And the rest had first names only. Oh, I see. And then there were, there were some that was unknown. And mm. for example, the, the one that is from the 700 years ago was mm. an unknown individual. And then there were two children oh. as well and, and without names though. What, how, what, what ages are we talking here? Um, the children, the older one was about eight years old, um, six to eight years old, and the younger child about six years. So the older one was a boy and the younger one a girl. Right. Um, coming back, I'm going to be speaking to, to Catherine Smith now, who is now on the line. And I will take your comments and questions, 891 Also, I mean, I'm very curious if you are from Sutherland and uh, you know something of this particular project, I'd love to hear from you. Or perhaps you have a connection to the story. I'd love to hear from you on 891 SAFM, leading the conversation. We are in conversation with Professor Loretta Ferris, Deputy Vice Chancellor of Transformative Transformation at UCT, Professor Simon Hall, uh, who was in a project that was led by Professor Ferris, um, and also PhD candidate Catherine Smith, who joins us now on the line from Liverpool. And basically, this project was to repatriate um, remains of uh, skeletons that date back, some of them apparently, uh, from the, I don't know, um, from about 700 years back, uh, which were acquired unethically uh, by UCT and UCT made a decision to take them back to to the community they came from and try and see if they cannot connect them with their family um, that may still uh, be living at the moment. This is the community in Sutherland, as we are told. Um, Catherine, thank you very much for joining us. And I'm, I'm quite curious about the process that you had to embark on when you started working on the sketches. Good afternoon, Catherine. Hi, Camilla. Thank you very much for having me. So the the process of working on the sketches, what were you working with? What did you have at your disposal? Right, okay. So firstly, they aren't sketches. They, okay. I suppose they're kind of photographic um, impressions. Okay. But what I had to work with were something very beautiful, um, CT, so computer tomography scans, that another member of the scientific team produced, Dr. Tinashe Mutsvangwa, um, and a PhD student of his produced those at UCT. Um, so I'm a South African, but I'm doing my PhD in forensic art um, at Face Lab, Liverpool John Moores University, mm-hmm. and we have an entirely digital workflow. So that means we don't have to handle human remains themselves, but we receive um, the digital files, and then from, the, from those files, I create 3D models um, within a piece of uh, computer software, but it's a modeling software, so it enables me to do virtual sculpture. Ah, so, so it wouldn't be a sketch, it would be like a digital... Uh, as you said, photography. It, it becomes photography. So mm. the first part of the process is to actually do a 3D shape reconstruction mm-hmm. from the skull. 
um, which involves reconstructing the facial muscles. So mm -hmm. we attend very closely to the anatomy mm -hmm. of each skull. It's a highly individualistic process. Mm. Um, we reconstruct the facial muscles, all the soft tissues, um, their techniques um, and methods that allow us to do accurate feature prediction. So this process produces a 3D model, so it's mm. a virtual sculpture. Mm -hmm. we it, the process itself is also haptic, which means that instead of controlling the computer with a mouse, as you would maybe normally do, this has an articulated arm which allows me to feel the form that I'm modeling. So it is exactly oh, like sculpture. It's just happening <laughs> in a computer. <laughs> and then, so that... That shape reconstruction, we know it's been validated many times. We, can, we know that we're accurate for 70% of the facial surface within two millimeters. Wow. So we're pretty confident about our accuracy with shape, but shape accuracy doesn't necessarily produce um, a relatable face. So because that face is without the textures, yeah. the wrinkles, the hair, yeah. all the things that make us relate to another person's face. Mm -hmm. So then we have to take... Um, a screenshot of the model out into a photo editing software like Photoshop mm -hmm. and then add those textures. Well, this is the technique that yes. I work with. We add those textures um, from photographic databases. Oh, my goodness. I mean, uh, uh, Dr. Ferris, uh, Professor Ferris, I don't know if you are the person that kind of presented these images. I don't know if you are the person, but I'm just curious how they were received upon seeing what could have been, what would have been, what they may have looked like. Dr. Ferris, uh, Professor Ferris, are you still there? Yes, hello. I'm saying, were you the person who presented these images to the community? And I'm just curious about the reception of, of what may have looked like their relatives. Yeah, so unfortunately, I did not go with the team on that particular visit. But Catherine was there, so okay. she may be able Catherine, to talk to were you, were you there on the day? Yes, I, I was oh. there. Um, so for the majority of the process, I've been obviously working abroad. Okay. But yes. um, I was out for um, the, the scientific knowledge sharing um, yes. session in Sutherland. Yes. Um, yeah, and it was, it was highly emotional, yeah. I think, for all of us, you know, for different reasons. Um, I was very anxious. Um, to present, obviously, I was hoping that the families would like what they were presented with, mm. um, but I also had no idea about their level of expectation mm. um, and what they were quite what they were very surprised by was in their words that they didn 't expect that they could look so realistic um, and they also said to me that they didn 't expect them to look like someone they could meet in the street. Sure. So, you know, we use these techniques for forensic identification in the case of unidentified people, unidentified mm -hmm. bodies. Um, so our, our level of attending to individualism and accuracy, you know, we attend very closely to those things. When we can apply these things to um, an archaeological or a heritage context, and especially in a restitution context, but this is, you know, a very unique um, situation that we were very privileged to be involved with, um, for me... Being able to, my interest in this is, is the restoration of personhood mm. and dignity. And mm. if we can put a face <laughs> to otherwise anonymous remains, um, that's a very significant thing. And it seemed that the family's responses to the images really demonstrated to me that that was successful. Mm. They recognized the individual dignity, 
the even even to the point of of reading emotion into mm. the faces they they've they they expressed to me that they felt a real connection oh my word with all eight individuals i mean i say eight because one of the nine uh, there were nine individuals all together mm-hmm. um but the night for the ninth one the the skull is missing so i was only able to recreate the faces of eight mm. Professor Hall, how did this experience touch you? I mean, you do this kind of work, and I don't know if it comes often where you get to do this kind of work where you touch people's history in the kind of way that you touched uh, these communities with this project. Yeah, <clears throat> thank you. I think Catherine has has um, used the word, uh, it was a privilege, mm-hmm. um, to, to, to give back um, and... The, the, the way I see the the relocation of the cemetery is is sort of putting their memory back on the landscape in a place. So so in other words, providing closure. Mm. And I think the whole the whole scientific uh, team, um, the way the different types of evidence and insight and perspective and contributions um, interlink. Um, melded um, to to provide a much richer um, uh, picture. It was a privilege to really be part of that team, to see all of this um, uh, information come together and and to to give it back. Um, And it it really provides texture, individuality, as Catherine has described, and in essence, closure. Uh, or, or a contribution to closure on this this quite dismal and gruesome uh, episode. Really appreciate your time. And I mean, uh, Professor Ferris, for you, this entire project, it touched me being so far away. I, I can't imagine how you have been touched by this project. You know, for me, it felt very personal. I am from the Northern Cape originally. Mm. So it it did feel like, you know, it felt like a personal journey as well. And, of course, you know, when we initially started, we thought we, it would be a reburial only. But then with a partnership with the family, it became this whole um, process around um, creating some information around these people and, and, in a way, humanizing them. And so that has been really special. And, and that's something, you know, um, no, no other university has done. And so, what, you know, the kind of innovation is, is really important to us, that we were able to actually bring, a, you know, some, some form of restoration back um, using the same research that actually did the injustice. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of a full circle, which, is, which has really been an amazing part of this journey. Listen, pass our regards to the entire team. We couldn't speak to everybody, but everybody. Thank you so much for this work. Thank you very much for bringing back dignity to the people of this country. Thank you very much for this project. Thank you.